Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The online world has given us whole new ways of reading news and of staying informed, not just about the day's events, but about the social and cultural shifts and zeitgeist of our time. That was once a job that was filled by magazines, magazines that became totems of particular times and place. Time magazine ushered in the American century after World War II. Life magazine provided the bonding iconography of the 50s, and certainly Playboy and Hugh Hefner reshaped the sexual coming of age from the mid-50s and beyond. Add to this pantheon Rolling Stone magazine. Founded by Jan Wenner in 1967, its leader and its writers would continue to define the culture, ethos, and ambitions of the 60s, as well as the ways in which those ideas would be kept alive in succeeding decades. The story of Rolling Stone has never been fully told until now by my guest Joe Hagan in his new book, Sticky Fingers. Joe Hagan has written for New York, Rolling Stone, and the Wall Street Journal, as well as many other publications. He's published long-form and investigative exposés on some of the most significant figures of our time. And he's the author of Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. Joe Hagan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You talk to hundreds of people, hundreds of celebrities in, in the course of writing this book. To what extent was this an exercise in nostalgia, or was there really a sense that that Rolling Stone and and so much of what everybody talked about really still played a role in the world that we live in today? I think we are at the um, the last period of Rolling Stone's history. I mean, it's been fifty years. Um, Jan Winter is selling the magazine, right. and there was a sense of an ending. You know, a lot of the people who are the significant rock stars who I talk to, who are in the in the book, are uh, you know, uh, I, you know, they're they're retired or aging out. You know, they're in their seventies and eighties in, in many cases. So, um, but the book itself is not really a nostalgia trip at all, and um, it was actually an opportunity to kind of um, get past the nostalgia a little bit and breathe some life back into the story by showing how it really was, right. and. Uh, one of the things that allowed me to do that was Jan Winner's archive of materials, uh, which I had access to, which was just really hundreds and hundreds of boxes of uh, correspondence and you know recordings and pictures, and it really allowed me to kind of go down into the details of relationships that Jan Winner and Rolling Stone had with Mick Jagger and John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and kind of retell those stories or actually tell them for the first time, some of the secret histories behind how the culture got shaped and what people read in the magazine. Talk about the relationship between the magazine and Jan Wenner and the degree to which the two are so symbiotic in so many ways. Yeah, well, the hallmark of the great magazines of the 20th century was that they were pure expressions of the worldviews of their founders. I mean... Time was really <clears throat> Henry Luce's vision of America, and it was a you know he was conservative. He had a very kind of you know specific ideas about how he viewed the world and how he wanted to move around in it. Same with Hugh Hefner. I mean, Playboy was really a vision of his you know fantasies and desires and uh, the world as he would like it to be, sophisticated kind of gentleman of leisure, right? And same with Rolling Stone. <clears throat> it was really an expression of Jan Winner's kind of um, vision of the counterculture of the late 60s as something that was bigger and more and uh, had more credibility and more importance than it was given up to that point and 
his whole point with Rolling Stone was to create a kind of window, a really tasteful, smart, um, kind of well-made window into the world that he was in the middle of, which is San Francisco in 1967, the you know the Renaissance of rock of the rock age, and and so he also recognizes that this world is going places beyond San Francisco. That that the youth culture was going to take over because this was the richest, biggest, most well-educated generation the world had ever seen. And Jan understood innately that uh, you could follow this magazine on a bi-weekly basis as Jan Wenner himself kind of uh, went into every kind of um, hot spot of the culture, whether it was Washington, D.C. or Hollywood or wherever, and the magazine reflected that. Talk about the decision to start the magazine and really what the opportunity was that he saw that nobody else was really filling. 1967 was the real inflection point Mm -hmm. um, in the culture. You had the summer of love, of course, in San Francisco. The hippie movement was a thing that was kind of a curiosity in the mainstream press, but nobody really understood it from the inside, you know, I mean, or from the outside. You had to understand it from the inside. And the Monterey International Pop Festival was like really the first big youth culture media event that everybody paid attention to, and all the mainstream press was there. And in addition to that, you had the record companies were starting to try to figure out how they could exploit this. And... You know, they were transitioning from an old world of Frank Sinatra and Andy Williams to what are the kids listening to? How do we sell this? What is this stuff? And suddenly, Jan, perfectly positioned uh, in the fall of 1967, you know, cobbles together uh, a newspaper that is going to really be kind of the intersection between the world he knew from the inside, the youth culture, and the outside world. And he understood that this was a culture that was going mainstream. And the hippie underground movement was creating newspapers, but they were, you know, illegible to most people. You know, they were very insidery, hippie, psychedelic design and everything. Jan said, I'm going to make this legible and make it look like a real newspaper that people, you know, somebody's parents would recognize if they picked it up, but except what was in it was rock bands and, you know, stone stoner news. So... That was a a real revelation at the time. To what extent did he want to touch the hem of the fame of that era and in a way make himself famous? He was known at the time as a a groupie. That was his reputation, that he was, you know, he liked to be around and gain, gain access to the big rock stars and especially John Lennon and the Beatles, right? The Beatles were his heroes as they were for a lot of people his age, you know, most maybe. And, um, he, you know, partly what drove Jan was that he was fame-obsessed, sure. He was a social climber, too. You know, he had been a social climber, you know, a guy that liked to be around the society set before the hippie thing really took off. And when it did take off, he recognized that, well, this is just another social world that I can get up in. And, of course, who's at the top of the rock scene? It's the rock stars. And he wanted to be around them, befriend them, socialize with them, and really, at the end of the day, transact them for Rolling Stone magazine. And, you know, the, the arc of the story of five decades of Rolling Stone in this book, Sticky Fingers, is Jan making his way through the culture, getting around wherever the power, wherever the fame, wherever the sort of zeitgeist was happening, he wanted to be there. And he, that was just his natural desire and inclination. And in every case, he turned it into material 
for his newspaper, which he, was a newspaper at the time, later a magazine. He also had a remarkable instinct for where that culture was going, how that zeitgeist was changing at any given time. Well, yeah, and, and part of that was that he lived in it, you know, 24-7. I mean, this, he's not a person who uh, bowed out and, you know, found himself disconnected from what was happening. He was always on the pulse because he traveled in the circles uh, where the action was. That meant the big rock stars, but also power brokers of Washington. When he got interested in Washington, he, you know, he had a... And a fine example is in 1971, he took on a big investor who was the chairman of the Xerox Corporation, Max Pilevsky was his name, who was also the top donor to the McGovern campaign when, when McGovern was running against Nixon in 72. And so this gave Jan and Rolling Stone entree to the presidential election. And who does Jan uh, sort of assign to cover the election but Hunter S. Thompson? So this is the kind of example of how Jan was so brilliant at sort of seeing an opportunity and striking, and striking often with just a brilliant flair. I mean, to what a stroke of uh, brilliance in a way to send Hunter S. Thompson on a presidential campaign, who was this gonzo, crazy, drug-addled writer. And it really was going to assert the voice of the youth culture into the mainstream. And he did it by you know, conscripting a, a wealthy patron by uh, conscripting a, a brilliant new writer. And uh, that was Jan Winner's um, kind of essential uh, talent. How did all of these celebrities view him? You talk about him as a social climber. How did they see his role? I think they saw him. It, it, there was a variety of responses. I mean, some people thought of him as a partner, as a advocate as a booster, right? And if I'm friends with Jan Winter, I'm going to get covers in Rolling Stone, I'm going to get good coverage, I'll be able to promote, promote my record. You know, other people saw him as like uh, the devil they had to do the dance with, but they didn't necessarily like him. And he had a lot of power at one time. You know, a lot of power accrued to him because he was the gatekeeper of people's fame, of people's kind of uh, presentation in the culture. You know, um, he, he would... Uh, you know, have your picture taken by Annie Leibovitz and put you on the cover and print up 15,000 words of whatever you decided to say. And that was incredibly powerful. Um, so that gave him power. And, you know, the book kind of gets into the ins and outs of who felt like they were benefiting from his friendship and those who didn't. For instance, John Lennon was, a, you know, a friend of his in the late 60s. And Paul McCartney, during the breakup of the Beatles, never trusted John Winter because he thought he was John Lennon's, you know, um, groupie. So, yeah, you have all these sort of like uh, what what essentially are little petty squabbles that are going on, but they shape history. And um, often you find that the personal uh, is the historical at the end of the day. You know, small things make big waves when you're dealing with somebody like John Winter and Rolling Stone. How much was he aware and careful about his own legend, his own story? Well, he was a little bit um, uh, maybe unaware of exactly what his reputation was b building up to be through the years. I mean, he was very uh, ambitious. He was known in the 70s. He was sort of a, a much more kind of unknown figure in the, in the media because he was so 
ambitious. He had sort of taken this counterculture thing and turned it into a big enterprise. And he was seen as, uh, you know, arrogant, right? Because he always made really um, kind of outlandish declarations, like he was going to be the William Randolph Hearst of his generation. You know, he's like Babe Ruth pointing to the outfield. He's going to hit a home run. That was Jan about everything, you know, back in the day. And, uh, you know, over time he was seen, um, he was sort of famous. He was infamous as much as he was famous, I suppose you'd say. And, uh, you know, his... I think he was personally interested in in that kind of high profile for a while. Although when he moved the magazine to New York in 1977, he was a smaller fish in a bigger pond, right? And that sort of changed um, how people viewed him. And he was he became seen though as sort of like an irascible pirate who was running his own independent magazine against these big kind of corporate magazine companies, and and his profile became more of a um, yeah, piratical character. I always think of him, actually, as like a cross between Peter Pan and Captain Hook, right? He's sort of got a little of both, and that was his reputation. What precipitated that move to New York? Well, he felt like he'd outgrown San Francisco. You know, he, his magazine, especially after they broke the big Patty Hearst story in 1976, that was, you know, he got the inside scoop on her uh, uh, abduction and uh, kind of conscription into the SLA. And uh, after they broke that story, it made them such a big, um, powerful force in the media, and they were starting to get more advertising from Madison Avenue. And Freon, he felt like it was a natural thing to move the magazine to New York, get bigger, uh, advertisers and, you know, just become a bigger, um, enterprise. And that was part of his ambition, you know, and all the writers were there, he thought too. And, uh, he could, you know, recruit the biggest big name writers of New York. And so it was all about his ambition. Talk a little bit about his instinct for writers, because certainly they were, uh, many writers that were, were unknown at the time that became a, a big deal as a result of Rolling Stone. Yeah, true. Well, Jan, uh, thought of himself as a tastemaker, and he understood, uh, you know, he could recognize good writing. Uh, he, he was, one of the things that I think uh, was Jan's um, talent was that he recognized ambition. He recognized ambitious writers who wanted to do things, and because he himself was ambitious, he could recognize it in others. And he often saw very, very ambitious people as potential partners, and he would give them a chance. He would give them a chance in his pages. Uh, for every great writer he produced, he probably published, you know, 10 bad ones. But that was the uh, risk-taking side of Jan that was uh, very powerful. And, uh, you know, over the years, he became probably sharper at identifying them, although over the years, he also... Uh, grew more distant from his own magazine. He had other people running it for him. But in the 70s, he was really kind of like this, you know, this shark who was on the lookout for the best writers because writing, especially during the heyday of Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson, was the rock and roll of the period. I mean, people were thinking of writers as like uh, on the level of rock stars for a while. And Jan really, that appealed to Jan. And Jan could see... Um, you know, this was almost like his main focus was finding great writers and recruiting them. And often he was recruiting them from mainstream newspapers to come work for his, you know, countercultural magazine, which was a, an interesting move because, you know, 
it, it gave credibility to his newspaper to have real reporters working there. Um, so anyway, he was good. Uh, he was, he had a sharp eye for writers. It's true. At what point did the publication go from being countercultural to almost mainstream, and how did he deal with that? Well, he he wanted it from the beginning. I mean, that was his his um, desire was to uh, be establishment. You know, he wanted to overthrow the establishment by becoming the establishment. That was his his thing. He would he would say this actually, and you know, in the late seventies, especially because. As he got bigger and he moved to the magazine to New York, people questioned his uh, credibility and his authenticity. They said, "Well, you're, you've lost touch, you know, with the with the kind of uh, essence of the of the rock culture, of the counterculture, of the idealism of the '60s." And he would say, "No, you know, uh, we the we were we are now the establishment. We, you know, what." It's, he, he said, we weren't you know, co-opted by the establishment, we became the establishment. So this was his argument for, and it was true, it was sort of like his essential vision, which was that what, turned, what, what appeared at the outset to be an outsider thing, a counterculture, the, the late 60s hippie thing and the youth culture, looked like it was some kind of outlier or some kind of thing on the margins. He knew, in essence, that it was all headed into the center of the action. Uh, because it was going to reinvent what culture was around their values. And that's what Rolling Stone documented, you know, on a biweekly basis for decades. And did he ever have a sense of or a fear of being co-opted by whatever the next counterculture was? Well, that's a good that's a good question because in the late 70s when punk and disco came along, all the whole music world kind of splintered into lots of different niches and different factions. And for the most part, Rolling Stone was able to kind of, you know, bring them all in and uh, make them part of the mix. But it did dilute um, the music culture. And, and um, especially in the late 70s, this was a struggle for Rolling Stone. And Jan's answer to that was to bring in uh, new, you know, non-music stuff, Hollywood actors, more politics, and you know he would just sort of change the dials on, on the mix as they called it. And uh, but where it got uh, troubling and where things started to you know maybe go sideways for Rolling Stone as a cultural vehicle was when MTV came along. I mean mm. that reinvented the music culture around video and around image. And for a long time, Jan benefited that from that because Rolling Stone would just you know put those stars on the cover, and it was an easy way to pick out the stars. You know, whoever's hot on MTV, you put them on the cover of Rolling Stone. And it was in the 80s, actually, that Jan made a lot of money on Rolling Stone. But um, when you get to the 90s and onward, Rolling Stone really lost its traction. And it, it, uh, it wasn't because a new counterculture came along. It was because music... Uh, faded from centrality in the culture. You know, it was not as center, central to, you know, uh, everything that was going on, frankly. Mm-hmm. Talk about how long he was able to maintain his enthusiasm for all of this. You talk about these periods in the 80s and 90s. Talk, talk about that. Well, as especially after he moved to New York, he did start to, uh, he knew as he got into his 30s and 40s that he was not in touch with the youth culture anymore, you know, and he was frankly not that interested in it 
musically. He his musical taste didn't really evolve much past the seventies, is the truth. And in some cases, not even past the sixties. But he he you know found people who could do it because now he was in New York among a professional class of editors and publishers, and he could hire you know people to do that for him. And his interest became more you know uh, entrepreneurial and and and. Um, business. You know, he wanted to get rich. And this is this in the eighties was the era of, you know, the greed decade, the mm-hmm. the yuppies, you know, he he turned himself into the consummate yuppie. And he was proud of it, you know, because he saw Rolling Stone as part of the the journey of the baby boom, right? And now the next uh, you know, turn in the road was going to be let's get rich. And that's what he did. And and the magazine didn't really it kind of uh, reflected that, but in a different way. It became glossy. You know, it became a much more professional-looking glossy magazine, staffed by much more kind of professional uh, veteran publishing people. It was not as experimental anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, by the '90s, it's a very fat magazine with tons of ads, lots of alcohol and cigarette and car ads. He's very rich, and he's got a private jet. And he's turned his interests, I mean, he's turned his focus onto the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which he helped develop and, and create. He also made efforts at, at other ventures, including uh, a, a hotel that he wanted to do in Vegas that never quite worked out. Right. Well, listen, his whole, this goes dates back to the 60s. He, every time he tried to uh, branch out from Rolling Stone, it well. Often it didn't work. I mean, he was he was a risk taker, but he sometimes like sort of pulled the trigger too quickly, or he lost focus on what he was doing. And he tried so many different. He tried to be a Hollywood producer. He tried to start a club in the late '70s. He tried to reanimate Look Magazine, which was like a picture book from the '60s that had gone out of business. He, uh, you know, eventually bought Us Monthly, which didn't really do much until later when he brought it weekly, and that became his sort of late career. Renaissance was that he uh, started Us Weekly magazine and got into the tabloid business and then got really, really rich. And um, then the hotel thing was interesting because that was, um, you know, it was sort of the the most um, uh, maybe uh, ambitious and um, somewhat decadent concept to do a big hotel chain around Rolling Stone. And it all kind of crashed with the 2008 market crash. And so it was like, uh, yet again, he'd sort of uh, not quite got it right. But, um, you know, when he did get it right, he got it very right. You mentioned, you've talked about the fact that, that he really encouraged this book, that he came to you to, to write it. Talk about yeah. what he what he thought would evolve from this, because obviously there's parts of it that he's not happy with. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a documentary on HBO right now called Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's sort of a history of the, of the culture of the last 50 years through the, through the eyes of Rolling Stone. Jan Wenner was the executive producer on it. And it's a very reverent view of the past, very nostalgic. And listen, they got some great footage. Alex Gibney was the producer, the director of it, mm-hmm. and it's a co-director. And it's really, you know, it's well made, but it's, uh, but it's a little bit uh, disconnected from where we are today. You, you don't feel exactly like uh, it's a, you know, the full story. And I think Jan probably wanted something a little more reverent. If you look at that documentary, he probably wanted something more like that out of this book. 
But my job was uh, you know, different. It was an independent book from the start, and I needed to tell um, the you know strip back some of the nostalgia and just tell it like it actually happened. And uh, you know that's a a more raw kind of rough edged story because Jan was a ambitious entrepreneurial guy who uh, you know broke some eggs to make the omelet, as they say. And uh, he probably didn't like to see all that. And he also, you know, you you probably know this and others do too, but he was a closeted um, gay man mm-hmm. uh, throughout uh, much of the history of Rolling Stone, and, and this had never been explored. You know, nobody had ever talked to him about it. Nobody ever uh, questioned the ramifications of that, like that, uh, you know, uh, a gay man was sort of the architect of the rock and roll story and, and image making of rock stars for all those many years and the importance of his wife, his ex-wife to the story and how important she was, um, Jane winner. And, uh, so I explored that in depth and I'm not sure how much he appreciated all that. She brought the, her family brought the original money that, that started the publication. That's right. Exactly. And, um, you know, and then she learns not long after that that he has had a male lover, and then they have to figure out what they're going to do, and they end up getting married anyway. And you know, there's a little bit of a there's a complicated uh, marriage there that, uh, and she became part of the formula for the success of Rolling Stone in ways that nobody had ever really articulated. And it was pretty fascinating to get into that. And she spoke to me for the book, and she was very candid. How much did his personal life? shaped the coverage of evolving gay culture and even the AIDS crisis in the 70s and 80s? Well, it's interesting because obviously he was not out, but, and his audience, by the way, was, uh, you know, white, straight males. I mean, that was like most of his audience was like uh, 19, 20-year-old. And, but, uh, Jan had, you know, what you might call the gay male gaze, right? He understood that rock stars were sexy, and he liked that himself personally, but he also understood that everybody was recognizing this, that rock and roll was in essence about sex. And, you know, Annie Leibovitz, the photographer who's got her start at Rolling Stone, becomes his right arm in this because she comes to understand that if we can get these rock stars to take off some of their clothes and get them on the cover of the magazine, that this is going to be shocking and revelatory, and it's going to sell magazines. At, at the same time, it's the 70s, which was this era of ambiguous sexuality. That, you know, there was a, Androgyny was in, and in a way, that benefited Jan. Jan could see that. Jan, Jan understood it. He liked it. He had a kind of um, innate feel for it. So um, later on, during the 80s, though, when AIDS comes along, this complicates Jan's life, I would say, because he, uh, on the one hand, uh, he doesn't want anybody to know he's gay, but this is going to constrict whatever uh, lifestyle he was hoping to have on the side. Um, but at the same time, he did have publish one of the most groundbreaking articles on AIDS in Rolling Stone magazine. It was by David Black, journalist David Black, and it won a National Magazine Award. And it was very... Uh, powerful and, um, you know, kind of pioneering story on AIDS. But um, but Jan himself uh, was pretty much in denial about it uh, until, you know, for another 10 years. How does he, when he looks back on the magazine today, what does he see as its legacy? What is What are the one or two things 
that that he hopes will be its legacy? Well, he's been out there in the last year um, talking about how Rolling Stone represented a social movement. That, you know, that the uh, positive aspects of it were that the, the 60s culture that he helped define and, and kind of celebrate uh, helped change uh, the culture for the better and uh, made people more free, maybe, you know, brought, maybe brought in, uh, you know, he advocated for liberal policies and mainly just Democratic Party stuff. And, you know, that's, I think that's true as far as it goes. Um, I have a little bit different view, and that's probably also why he's not exactly excited about the book. But, um, you know, there's, um, I think that it's hard to, uh, if you're a successful person like he was, and you're at the end of your career, which is 50 years long in this case, um, it's diff- you know, he wants to look back and kind of um, re-engineer his own history uh, to make it come out as positive as possible, which is, you know, of course he does. Um, but my job as, in this biography was to connect it to what has happened now. You know, how did we get from John Lennon on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1967 to this time we're in now where Donald Trump is president. You know, what, how, did, how did all the turns on the road of the culture happen? How did this generation, and by the way, Donald Trump and Jan Winter are the exact same age, how, how did this 50 uh, uh, years uh, of culture look, and how did it arrive to this moment? And I, that's the story that I wrote. Joe Hagan, the book is Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Winter and Rolling Stone Magazine. Joe, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.